Welcome to The Litigation War Room, where you will hear great stories and great insights from some of the nation's most accomplished courtroom lawyers. Here is your host, litigation attorney, Maxwell Goss. On this episode of The Litigation War Room, I speak with prominent criminal defense attorney, Neil Rockide. Neil talks about his amazing victory in securing the acquittal of an individual charged with reckless driving following the tragic highway death of a police officer. Along the way, Neil provides a range of insights on trial practice, including the importance of humanizing the defendant, dealing with intense public scrutiny in high-profile cases, and how cross-examination can make or break your case. I enjoyed this interview very much, and I hope you will as well. Neil Rockine, welcome to the Litigation War Room. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I love the name, by the way. Litigation War Room is awesome. It's an awesome name because anybody who's tried a case has some room that they designate somewhere in their office as a war room. And so I love the idea that you've taken that and converted it into this form and this setting. It's awesome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, thank you for the kind words and thank you for picking up on that. Right. It's intended to suggest one look, you know, litigation is, among other things, it's a battle. We're out there to win for our clients. Uh, but also, anybody who's been practicing litigation and who does trial work knows that a lot happens in that war room. And so, my, my hope for this podcast has always been that we have some helpful, interesting, useful insights and conversations here on the war room that might have similar value for our listeners. All right, let's have at it. Neil, I want to talk to you today about a case you handled called People v. Charles Warren. But first, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your law firm? So I thought I'd be able some time ago to develop a a way to kind of encapsulate my life and my experience in like a 60-second elevator pitch, and I haven't. But here's the short story. So I grew up in Detroit, ultimately moved to the suburbs was never really one of those kids who felt like he fit in, but I was always able to form a contrarian argument to everybody anywhere. I can't say that I always won, but I always was able to form some argument to pick apart something that someone else was saying to me or telling me. And so from a young age, people were like, you're going to be a lawyer. And sure enough, I ended up becoming a lawyer. I was a prosecutor for a very short period of time. And I've been in the trial wars, so to speak, as a criminal defense lawyer, and I've handled a variety of litigation from the criminal defense side for years. And we've got a firm. I love my office. I love my my team. We've got a great team. We handle cases all over. And I'm just uh, blessed that people have turned to me and to us over the years when they or a loved one are in trouble or have a problem. And From time to time, I've stepped a bit outside of our comfort zone and taken cases in other areas, working with some lawyers in some civil rights cases, once in a while participating in some other kind of a case, even if it were a a family law case. But my role is, is in those cases is usually the same as it is in our cases, which is it's my goal to bring to the case some intensity, experience, and my sort of overall personality and to bring to it some killer cross-examination. Yeah, yeah, and I want to come back to that last phrase. But, Neil, you have a a huge reputation. You've handled some very high-profile cases. Each one of them could be an episode in itself. But can you just tell our listeners a bit about some of the the more high-profile cases you've handled over the years? Sure. So as a prosecutor, I was involved in 
some pretty significant cases over the years. I was involved in one of the prosecutions of uh, Jack Kevorkian. It was the the last prosecution under Richard Thompson. The case didn't uh, get very far in the court system, but it was a whirlwind of an experience. And Jack Kevorkian, known, known to some as, quote-unquote, Dr. Death, he was an yes. assisted suicide uh, advocate. Yes, and it brought me face-to-face with Jeffrey Feiger, who at the time I was uh, 26 or 27 years old. I figured that if I was in court and I could win an objection against one of the great trial lawyers in history, that I would be ahead of the game. And I enjoyed being in that eye of the hurricane to the extent that I was. And um, before that, I'd had some big cases as a prosecutor. And then when I left the office, I'd been involved in just almost too many cases to even run through. But there have been a, a several high-profile cases. Some have involved death. Some have involved vehicular homicides or cases in which someone died after a, a traffic accident. Some have been have been worse. I just finished a trial, for example, that involved a man who was accused of making threats online, I guess, for lack of a better word, or a telephone threat to the superintendent of the Oxford Public High School. That was the first case that went to trial arising out of the Oxford Public High School tragedy. Uh, Certainly not the case involving Ethan Crumley or his parents, but it touched on the tragedy. And I got an opportunity to cross-examine the superintendent of the school district, some other people in the the school district. It was a really, uh, and our client was acquitted as he should have been, in my opinion. And it was just an incredible experience being part of that. And so it just, it's continued. I've just been blessed to have been able to, to be in the octagon, so to speak, although ours is a courtroom, in some, in some big matches. And I'm proud of the results we've gotten. I really have been blessed to be involved in some very, very big cases. And uh, I've been no stranger to the media in, in those cases. Yeah, yeah, that's really amazing. It seems like you're everywhere. The case you mentioned arising out of the Oxford tragedy, I imagine that it implicated some interesting issues, so to speak, or or to say the least, regarding civil liberties and the right to free speech and how that bumps up against uh, public safety and the safety of our children. I imagine that was a very delicate set of that, among other things, I'm sure made it a very delicate case to handle. It did. And, And Max, you were really spot on. I know we haven't talked about that case, but you were really spot on in identifying what the issue would be, which as a, as a trial lawyer, you have to be able to do. You have to be able to hear. And it is a, it's a skill, but it's a talent. There is a skill to it and there's a talent. Both those things come together, as you know, when you hear about a, a new set of facts. The first time a client sits down and tells you the case, your mind has to be going to how is this case going to be litigated and how is it going to be tried? And if you're not thinking of those things when you're meeting with the client, you ought to tell the client that you can't help him or her. And you hit the nail on the head. That case involved issues of free speech, an issue of public importance, uh, public official, what constitutes a threat versus uh, a true threat under the what's protected free speech and what's not. And it touches on issues that were very, very people are trying to heal from. and opened up, I think, some wounds 
Well, Neil, I'd like to go back to something you said. And by the way, I appreciate appreciate the kind words. But I want to go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned the phrase killer cross-examination. Now, now you, Neil, have a fantastic podcast called Killer Cross-Examination. You've had some amazing guests. You yourself have offered and regularly offer really amazing insights, often on hot issues of public import. What does that phrase, killer cross-examination, mean and where did it come from? So cross-examination is both a skill that can be learned, but there is a talent to it. And yes, you can go so far learning the skill, but you have to have a talent for being able to identify when to pounce. Um, You have to be able to identify when to inject humor. And you have to be able to think on your feet. For those who aren't really aware, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about sort of my, how I how I think about this. Most trials, criminal trials, civil trials, a lot of that is already in the can. It's already in the briefcase, so to speak, before the trial begins. Maybe jury selection isn't, but the lawyers know their openings. Whoever begins the direct examination, the lawyer and the witness, they've already done a deposition. They've already sort of kind of know where each other's going to go. They probably have gone over what the witness is going to testify to. By the time the witness gets up in court to testify on direct, when he or she is called, I, I don't want to say it's scripted, but you know where each other's going to go. It's a, it's a, it's a dance. You know where the, your partner is going to move, right? You got Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Someone's moving forward, someone's moving backwards. Someone's wearing heels, someone's wearing flats, but you know the moves. Cross-examination is the most dynamic part of any trial. It is where you can kill the other side's case. You can destroy a witness. You can kill your own case. The cross-examination is where you get up and the witness has absolutely no idea how you're going to begin, how you're going to end, where you're going to pitch, where you're going to move. They don't know. It is the one time in trial where everybody is not, where it's not scripted, where you don't know where you're going to go. And that's, in my opinion, when you want an acquittal, you better be able to cross-examine witnesses. You want a big verdict in a civil case? or you want to know cause if you're on the other side, you had better be able to cross-examine effectively. And killer cross-examination comes from that concept that it's not just a technical cross-examination. Sometimes you move in for the kill. Sometimes you're moving around your prey. Sometimes you're going to take a step back. Sometimes you choose not to ask any questions to convey to the jury the, the, the message that, you know what, this witness didn't hurt me. But Killer cross-examination was a, a phrase that someone had along the way said, I don't know if it was in my office or if it was somewhere else, man, that was a killer cross-examination. And it just sort of stuck. And then I started talking about how I conduct cross-examinations, which involves different concepts and different theories and different approaches. And it really, my idea is you have to have some humor. You have to have some visuals. You have to be engaging. You have to be funny at times. You have to be serious. You have to know when you have permission to go after a witness and when you don't. So that began, we started calling my cross-examinations, killer cross-examinations. And then over the years, we began this idea of a website. And then the podcast, the podcast really took off. And just the guests who've appeared on the podcast are, in my opinion, because I'm just like a, a trial junkie, are some of my, I don't know, like, you know, if I collected baseball cards, I would have baseball cards of trial lawyers because <laughs> these guys and women have been amazing. And every time they choose to appear on the podcast, I'm just absolutely blessed. And, you know, that, that, and the number of people who've said yes and have been so engaging, it's been awesome. 
Yeah, that's great. And it is an amazing podcast, and I would commend it to our listeners. You know, some of your observations about cross-examination brought to mind an interview with Norm Lippett, who, who was one of our very first guests on this podcast, who is also a legendary cross-examiner, and his observations. One thing that you said really uh, resonated and reminded me of something he said. You spoke of it as a talent, and I think he spoke of it similarly. Certainly, you can prepare, but to a certain extent, it's a matter of instinct, and it's a matter of what you do in the moment. I guess my question for you is, is it something that can be learned? Can killer cross-examination be learned by uh, any reasonably diligent attorney, or is it something you're just born with, or something in between? Yes, to all those questions. So are certain people born with uh, great dexterity and um, balance and athletic ability or grace? I would say yes. Are certain people predisposed in their to being wonderful at um, amazing at, at you know the piano or the violin or a musical instrument? I mean, there are people who I know just they hear a piano and there are these kids like savants and they just sit down and they start you know playing i mean it's amazing there are kids like for example there are people you can't even if you tried to teach somebody the notes and they spend hours upon hours upon hours of hours playing the music they might be able to play all the right notes but they may not be able to to bring the music alive the way that somebody now cross-examination itself is something that can be learned we all have the ability if you can step out of your shell and you're true to yourself to be an effective cross-examiner. Are you going to be the thunderous cross-examiner like a, like Jeffrey? Are you going to be somebody like Jeff Lichtman, who's just, you know, when I asked Jeff Lichtman what his style was, he said his style was suffocating. Are you going to be someone who's more surgical? I just spoke with Diane Menashe, uh, you know, who did the William Husel trial. She's identified her skill as surgical. If you know your style, you know your personality, then I would answer the question, yes, you are born with the ability to be able to cross-examine somebody. If you copy somebody else's style and it is antithetical to your personality, then you may be affected, but there are going to be moments where, you, where you're not. So I think everybody can do it. Can we all make the same music? I don't know the answer to that, but there are some very good, very competent, very effective lawyers. Like Norm Lippitt, for example, he had like a gleam. Is that the right word? He had a gleam. His eyes sparkled in a way. He had a smile, almost like he had a, like he knew something, even if he didn't. And you watch him in court and he just had that, you know what I mean? He looked so like he just had it all taken care of. And I don't know if that was the case, but he had that appearance. That's a talent. That's a skill. That's something he was born with. There are other lawyers that you know, got a million papers everywhere. The thing about being a cross-examiner, there's always room for improvement, right? There's no perfect cross-examination. There's no perfect trial. There's no perfect round of golf. So I think to myself, the lawyers that have appeared on the podcast with me come from so many different styles. I mean, from F. Lee Bailey to Dershowitz to Jeff Lichtman to Linda Keeney-Bodden. These are all different personalities. And what works out West may not work out East. What works in the South may not work in the North. None of us are going to be Jerry Spence, no matter how much you try to emulate him. And maybe that's the key, is don't try to emulate somebody, because their personality and their life experience is completely different than yours and mine. 
you know, it's, it's been wild and I've, I've loved every second of the podcast. I've loved it. Yeah. Wow. I really appreciate those thoughts. I guess as in all areas of law, being yourself really is one of the keys. Um, maybe nowhere, maybe that's nowhere more true than in cross-examination. It's true. A lot of people say that. One of the things that I, that I'll just share with you is that the pandemic, I think, set back the development of young lawyers a couple of years because young lawyers were able to, they were taking cases, but there was, there was nowhere to learn how to do what they were doing. Can't cross-examine witnesses on Zoom. You can't cross-examine witnesses from behind a mask when they're wearing a mask. And witnesses who are in court, Max, as you know, you can't cross-examine witnesses when they're, you know, you have to be able to watch great lawyers. That was the key when I, we were in the prosecutor's office was you'd just be there, you know, and you would end up just, you know, taking a couple of files and going to sit in the courtroom and watching some great lawyers try cases. That's how you learned, learn what to do, what not to do. You saw maybe someone that had a similar personality. You said, oh, I've done that. I've done that. So that's pretty good. Well, I want to turn to the Chad Wolf case, People versus Charles Warren. This was a case that involved the tragic death of a police officer, a Michigan State trooper named Chad Wolf, and uh, you represented Charles Warren, the defendant in that case. Can you tell us a little bit about the facts that led to that case? Yes. So it was a tragic case. There are no winners in a vehicular death case in a traffic vehicle case. Over the course of several years, over the many years, I should say, there's been an effort on the part of the legislature has, uh, and I think this goes for legislatures all across the country, but the legislature has attempted to criminalize acts where a person acted without any criminal intent. And a lot of those cases, in my opinion, are like traffic accident cases that result in the fatality. And they're accidents. But we've developed a system, a series of laws, including reckless driving causing death, leaving the scene of an accident causing death, driving while license suspended, causing death. And those offenses all are similar to um, involuntary manslaughter, like a homicide, because they all carry up to 15 years in, in prison. And on that fateful morning, Charles Warren, who was uh, my client, reminded me of a, of a grandfather in, in a way. He was uh, driving his vehicle up north getting on to I-75 from the Dixie Highway exit. And it's sort of an unusual exit. But that exit, as you enter onto northbound I-75, you enter into, I believe you enter into the left lane, which would be typically the fast lane, if I recall correctly, and memory serves. And he was pulling a trailer, a landscaping trailer. He, as he's getting onto the, navigating the entry onto the highway, actually feels a, um, a large, feels a bump, like something on the trailer. Didn't see anybody, no headlights, didn't see a siren, no sirens, didn't hear another vehicle. And because thought it was a trailer, you know, a, a, a bump in the road or a pothole, or a, he just continued driving onto I-75 and figured that it would resolve. And as he's on I-75, it's not resolving. Doesn't hear a person. As he's driving, he's now sees that there's some sparks and his vehicle is pulling behind him and dragging a bit the, the trailer. And he begins to move over from the left lane to the middle lane to the right lane and then onto the shoulder and then realizes, you know, maybe it's early in the morning at start. The best place to pull over would be at a rest stop, which is a rest stop about three miles up. 
When he pulls over at the rest stop, he's driving, his hands are on 2 and 10, he's driving very slow. As it turns out, the bump that he felt was Chad Wolf's motorcycle had collided with Charlie's trailer, and he was unaware of it. And he drove those three miles dragging unwittingly, unknowingly, dragging Chad Wolf on the, on the ground. It turns out that Chad had hit the trailer. He had sort of ejected or you know, catapulted, I guess, over the front of his motorcycle, over the top of the trailer, and ended up stuck on the other side of Charlie's trailer and was dragged. And it was it's a horrible, horrible, horrible death. All over the news, and justifiably so. I mean, it was a big story and, and truly mm-hmm. tragic. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You said that from your first conversation with the client, you should be thinking through what the issues in the case are going to be and where you're going to take this case at trial. What were some of the thoughts that you had early on in this case about what the issues would be and what you would need to show to secure an acquittal for your client? It's a good question. From early on in that case, and without going into communications between the client and I, I believed that we would have to, in some ways, take on, as I'm listening to the, to the story and I'm understanding the case, there's an added dimension to a case where there is the death of a police officer involved. Police officers are heroes. Now, I know that there's a, a, a raging debate about different police officers and different police departments and the status of a police department in Texas and what they did and didn't do. And I, I understand that. But to the average, to the, to the lay person, we know that when someone's in trouble, you know, like they're hurt, they call the police. Likewise, when there's danger, you expect, you hope, you expect that the people who are going to be running towards it are first responders and people are going to be running away from it are your average citizen. And so that is a dimension that you have to take into account immediately. And then the, the process begins. So you immediately analyze a case like this and think, this is an accident, and it has to remain an accident. If it is, and as you're listening to the facts or to the development, and you're trying to think of how, what are the charges, the process is you can't out-hero the, the officer right? There's a hero there. There's a tragic death. So then the question becomes, how do we demonstrate that our client didn't know? And what's, what was the reasonability of not of him being unaware? What's the reasonability of him driving? How do we get jurors to relate to that experience? And these are things that we're thinking about from the start, from the experience of a bump on the road, even a large one. Do you pull over at, on the side of the road at six in the morning when it's dark outside? on I-75, where people get killed, where officers are killed for just giving somebody a ticket. We hear those stories all the time. And if your wife said to you, or your life partner said to you, or your child said to you, dad, I'm pulled over on the, I have a flat tire. I'm going to pull over on the side of the road. Your first thought would be, where are you? Are you safe? Don't go into traffic. People may not see you. It could be somebody texting or whatever. So as we're, you make, maybe the best thing to do is drive slow with your hazards on and go to a rest area if there is one. And that's what, that's what Charlie did. And we're, we were thinking about, as I'm listening to the case, we're thinking about all of those things. They'd have to prove reckless driving. They have to prove that reckless driving caused that. 
willfully, wantonly disregarding the safety of others. And here's the other thing that we realized, Max. Have you seen the movie Sixth Sense starring Bruce Willis? Um, yeah, it's been a while, but it's a great movie. Anybody who's seen that movie, I don't care who you were, you didn't know what was going on in the middle of the movie. I know everybody says they did, but they don't. Okay? At the end of the movie, you go, oh, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. makes sense that Willis was dead and this kid was, right? Like, oh, and then as you look back with hindsight, all of the unknowns become known. They make sense. Hindsight and hindsight bias is a real barrier to being able to litigate cases. Because remember, the client sees the case, the, it lives the event from the beginning. Hindsight bias lives, you start the case from, but we know what happened. Now we're working backwards. So I'll tell you what happened in that case, Max. We began to think of how can we communicate to the jury what our client experienced so that they could relive that experience, those minutes on the road, without hindsight. And we attempted to do that during our opening. Right. Anyone can, I think, identify with the experience of driving on the highway and maybe there's something. You feel a bump. You're not sure whether you should act on it or not, or there's something out of place. I can make things even simpler. Sure. People who have, so this is, these are things we thought about. People who have your gas cap is off. Your trunk is open. You know what I mean? You have something hanging out your back door or your seatbelt, whatever it is that, you know, you closed and didn't see. Um, somebody has a light out in the back and you're unaware of it because you can't see it. Now, when it's brought to your attention, the question is, do you know what it is? And when it's brought to your attention, if you, if you don't know what it is, do you, what do you do that's reasonable? And our explanation in the case was that Charlie didn't know what it was, that when other people started to talk about, started to point to him on the road or try to make gestures to him or flashed him or honked at him, he doesn't necessarily know what the reasons are. I don't think anybody honked, but, but gestured towards him. The question is, at that point, did he, and he did, and then he attempted to get over and get into a, a rest area. And we argued that that was reasonable. Yeah, could you tell us a little more about about the trial itself and about any uh, killer cross examination that might have taken place at the trial? There are some lawyers who are very reluctant to get involved in a case with a police officer who is dead. We all have our the lines, uh, or is the decedent? We all have our lines of cases where things we we don't want to to do. And I respect everybody that has a line, whatever that line is. And um, I, I have no ill will at all towards Chad Wolf or his family. Never did. Don't even to this day. I just thought that criminalizing the accident. I thought that if it was, a, and, I, and I hate to say this, but I thought that if it was a kid or somebody who was driving a, like a speed bike or one of those sort of, you know, we hear those stories, I doubted very much that Charlie would have been prosecuted was, my, was our belief. So Charlie went through this case and the resources that had been amounted against him in the case, it seemed, were enormous from my view. The state police crime lab, had every, they had search warrants for everything. They had everybody doing everything. If it takes a, a year and a half to get DNA, not in this case, if it takes, you know, forget fingerprints and this analysis and that analysis and a fiber analysis and an op, and a, not in this case, three accident reconstruction. I mean, you know, it was just uh, the, the resources. And I understand that the resources were enormous, but they, they couldn't, they didn't find anything. And that worked to our advantage. And what we ended up doing was, as you know, Max, whenever you get, I'll tell you some of the cross-examination issues in the case, the media, the media was intense. 
the case began in the 52nd Second District Court in Clarkston in front of um, Judge Kelly Costin. And it began with issues about bond. Charlie, after uh, I think he was, he was on a tether and he was supposed to go immediately home and he, his wife and he on the way back from, I think it was a doctor or a court, I don't recall the specifics, but he drove. They went through a, a fast food line to get like a couple of his sandwiches. He never left his car, but there was a bond argument that he knew that he wasn't supposed to go to get food on the way home. There was an argument about a bond violation in that case. Then the issues in the case were cameras covered the case. It was live streamed. The courtroom was full of people at you know every turn. And the cross-examination in a case that involves some technical issues. So it involves personal issues and technical issues. So there were several eyewitnesses. The killer cross-examination, I'll say, the cross-examination of the witnesses in those cases, in that case, were about people that witnessed Charlie on the road. And when they witnessed Charlie on the road, remember, they just like he, they, they don't know what is happening. They find out later, hindsight, and their hindsight influences was the point of the cross, how they then put pieces together. And we showed that witnesses may have gestured at him, saw him getting off and said, okay, he's getting off. He'll figure it out. She said, I was never worried about myself. It was only, it was a, I was on the road going to my job. I was never worried about myself. I saw him getting off at the, I said, oh, he's getting off at the rest area. Good. He'll figure it out. Then she went about her day. Then later she hears about the death and says, oh my God, I wonder if that was him. That must've been him. Then she goes and she ended up talking to people in the hospital. Then she ended up finding out where saw the troopers and the police officers in the, in the elevator. And then she talked to the police and the police, and then she wrote her statement. And we highlighted how on the road, she was apparently, according to her, sort of talking to herself, which I doubt. But those are things that she subsequently, we pointed out in court. Then the conversation with yourself, I don't know if that takes place or not. But by the time she ended up typing out her statement, she had like long, you know, she had capitals. And I thought he could have been doing this and he could have exploded. And our point was, is that hindsight influenced the emotions of the day influenced her story. The same for another witness. And then I would say one of the keys in the case was our cross-examination of not just the detective or investigator, but the lead accident reconstructionist. There's a raging debate when you cross-examine a witness, Max, as you know, and then involves experts. Do you, have, do you get into the science or don't you? If you can understand the science enough to where you feel comfortable talking about it, and I felt very comfortable talking about the science in, this, in, our, in the case, the accident reconstruction science. In the end, that cross-examination of the lead investigator was extremely powerful. I would say if it was probably the most significant moment in the case. Because ultimately, he wasn't able, which is our, was our cross, because I understood the science. He wasn't able to say whether, because they couldn't determine the speed of Chad Wolf's, again, I'm not disparaging Chad Wolf, but they couldn't determine the speed of Chad Wolf's motorcycle. They couldn't determine whether he, how close he was to Charlie's trailer. They knew that they were in the same lane because that's where the contact was, was made in the same lane. So in Michigan, the argument is that he wasn't able to say whether Chad Wolf had, you know, whether he was, how close he was or how fast he was going. If you can't say how fast he was going, you can't say to a reasonable degree of scientific certainty that a trailing vehicle is able to 
maintain a uh, an assured clear distance and that was that was part of the argument the other was that we we picked up on something called a filament analysis there was an argument in the case about whether or not there was again reasonable doubt was there reason to question whether chad wolf had his headlamps on and we argued that there were filaments and the filaments um we went through this whole filament analysis and that if i, I did it on cross-examination with them that if the filaments had been, if they were on, there's a way to do that. And the filaments, if they're on, they'll be hot. They'll look at the coil and the coil, if it will then, it, it, it won't be cold. It will actually be bent during the accident, right? So you can arguably tell if the coil is, is hot or was hot at the time of the accident, it won't break at those points because it's, it's warm. It'll break maybe somewhere else um, and you'll see it bent. But if it's cold, if it's not on, the argument goes that if it breaks, it will break stiff. And if it's broken stiff, then it's like a coil that didn't actually, that didn't bend. And so we were arguing about filament analysis. And it was a very, very careful cross-examination. Max, we had to try the case. uh, And I never wanted to ascribe blame throughout the entire trial as to who was at fault. To this day, I still don't want to um, attribute blame. To who was at fault because it's an accident but you're trying to show or establish reasonable doubt correct and you're trying to show throughout the case and be respectful of the fact that there are that there's a police officer involved that there's a family who won't have their father come come home at night um that it's nobody's fault so you this wasn't one of those cases where you know and i you could just charge in and try the case like you know and just attack. So we learned from a focus group about how to, when we were trying to figure out how to approach the case, we learned, I think, how we could approach the case and ultimately get the jurors to reach that decision without offending them and saying, this is what we we believe. And they reached that conclusion. And it was, in all these years, Max, I'll tell you, in all these years, I have never, except for that case, cried during the reading of a verdict. I was absolutely, was absolutely overwhelmed. I just just had so much emotion and I reached in and I pictured my grandfather sitting there and just started kind of crying and gave him a kiss on the forehead and I hugged him and, you know, and he was, he was comforting me at that moment. Like, it's it's okay. Thank you. Thank you. It's okay. And I was, uh, really was blessed. That is really an amazing story. For sure. An incredible outcome. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. We had so many experiences in that case. The lawyers and I and who tried that case, we, we just, we had interesting moments during jury selection. We had a doctor who was on the jury panel, the original veneer, and she was just looking so sulky and she was going to take it out. We thought she would take it out on somebody for being forced to stay there. And so ultimately she was excused. We had jurors who, um, remembered the you know, they, they didn't remember the case but then they remembered when we talked about the dragon they're like oh i remember that and we had so many issues to talk about max about not just about a police officer being involved but about motorcycles and trailers and where do you pull over on the side of the road and what's reasonable and how, what's safe you know all those issues sort of swirled around and there were people who said yeah i don't think anybody elderly should drive and we're like anybody 
and to your point, I know that I talk about killer cross-examination, but that's really sort of my way to introduce trial topics like you're doing here. And being able to get jurors to reveal those feelings is really vital. And we were. Right. And to make not just the victim uh, a human, (laughs) a person that can be identified with, but also the defendant as well. Yes. And, and, And let me tell you something. Your personality, and, and me in that case, my personality in that case, my, you become the client's front person from the moment you pull into the courthouse that day. And I tell lawyers this, and, I'm, and I'll tell you, and I'll tell anybody, listen, you want to start getting ready for a jury trial? Start getting ready for the jury trial, obviously before. But as you're pulling into the courthouse, you think about, are you speeding? Are you cutting people off as you're hustling to get to the courtroom because the judge might be mad that you're late? Are you rushing through the line? Excuse me, lawyer, 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 and trying to walk through. And are you passing jurors? Are you seated in a way that makes jurors look at you when you're seated there like you're, you know, arrogant? All those things are things to be taken into account. And and so, yes, you have to humanize the client. And, and the only way to do that is to first get, you have to have credibility, and then you have to know, you, you need to be able to humanize the client, well, they're human, but they need to be relatable. So our client sitting there had to be relatable to the jury. And the way to present him, to allow his true relatability, because he is a relatable person, his true relatability was through me. They have to see me and see him sitting there. And all the while, do it in a way where you're not pointing the finger and saying, you know, that person, the complainant in the case, uh, you know, because he wasn't. I mean, you know, no, nobody, my, from my perspective, nobody deserved to die that day and nobody deserved to be charged. That's my view of that. And I made a point of letting the jurors know there were no winners in that case. Well, Neil, I've kept you a long time today. If you don't mind, let me ask you one more question about that case and then let's wrap up. The case received intense public scrutiny. And a number of cases you've handled have had that dimension. What difference does that make, if any, to how you try the case? It's a good question. You know, so the media scrutiny is, is you have to, in the middle of the case, so you know that the public scrutiny in the case is going to be there. You know that there's going to be intense public pressure about the case. You know that the people, people are going to be discussing the case. And the common view is I would do these little sort of informal focus groups, just little talks with people all over. Hey, you know that case? Oh, yeah, I know that case. What do you think about that case? You're like, oh, my God. You know, they charged him? I'm like, yeah, they charged him. And then they're like, you know, and they said, but what do you think? They would feel so bad for my client until I said, well, what do you think? They go, oh, you don't want me in that jury. And I would ask them why, and they would sort of, they had a hard time formulating it. And so as I got into that, you would start to figure out how, what is the, where are people's feelings on that subject? So the media scrutiny was that Charlie was, it seemed like the way the media wrote the case and talked about the case was that he began early on with what I think was a misperception. And that was that he had cut off or cut into Trooper Wolf. And, and I'm using a hand gesture that, you know, obviously our listeners can't see, but it was that going from one lane and just carving, you know, out of cutting off somebody else. And our argument was there's no evidence to support that. That was an important distinction. If you're in the same lane versus cutting one another off. And 
the media scrutiny from the beginning was that Chad Wolf was a hero, and he is a hero, and was a hero, and he and and deserves all of that those honors, and that Charlie was the guy who had done the unthinkable. That he was driving a small car, pulling a trailer. The trailer didn't have, um, uh, you know, brake lights on it. And then he had cut off a trooper and then dragged him for, you know, three and a half miles to his death. And so that's always in the back of him. How do we deal with that? We, we dealt with it very carefully and knowing that in the end, the jurors, um, that we we had a case and we had a case to present. I just wanted to get to the to the case. And I'm going to tell you something else. I know there are cases where lawyers spend a lot of time talking to the media throughout the course of the case. In that case, there are arguments in court and we litigated the case in court and waited for the most part for the court date uh, and the trial date to. And then um, afterwards, obviously, we discussed the case. But I mean, it was um, it, it to this day is a, I still look back upon it. And I still feel, I mean, it was an incredible result. It was the right result. Uh, Charlie was acquitted across the board. Neil, that's really an amazing story. Obviously, you handled that case with tremendous competence and sensitivity and real strategy that um, carried the day. So that, that's a wonderful story. I appreciate the stories you shared and, and the insights as well. It's really tremendous. Neil, if listeners want to find you and find your podcast, Killer Cross-Examination, how can they do that? We'll start with how to find me. They want to find our website relatively easy. I mean, they can certainly just, you know, type in my name somewhere online, Neil Rockine, N-E-I-L-R-O-C-K-I-N-D. Our firm name is uh, Rockine Law. So you can just look up my last name in law.com. So rockinelaw.com. And the podcast, you can find it at killercrossexamination.com. It's available everywhere on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, uh, you know, and there's a there's an audio version and a video version. Um, I think I have a face for radio, so the audio version is <laughs> I'm joking about that. That makes two of us. <laughs> but just if you look up Killer Cross Examination, you'll you'll see it. And there are some great interviews taking nothing away from your podcast, Mac, which is fantastic. And I hope you know, I don't do a lot of podcast interviews. I was glad that we were able to schedule this one. But I've had the the privilege of interviewing some lawyers that I just looked up to. Like I've got F. Lee Bailey. I've got a thing on my, you know, his book on my wall with a signed autograph. Tom Mesereau was talking to me. I'm like, Tom Mesereau? Like the Tom Mesereau? anybody wants to give us a look or a holler, we welcome the eyeballs and the ears to our website and podcast. Neil, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for sharing your insights on the Litigation War Room. Thank you, man. Hey, guys, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, Ford's Legal Support. As busy litigators, there are never enough hours in the day. Why use a bunch of different legal support providers when there's one you can trust for all your needs? Need a process server in Chicago or a trial presentation specialist in LA? How about a court reporter in Dallas or a computer forensic expert in Atlanta? Ford's Legal has you covered. I use Ford's Legal in my litigation practice. They are responsive, economical, and ready to help every step of the way. By leveraging cutting edge technology and best of class resources, Ford's Legal is a trusted partner of solo attorneys and AmLaw 100 law firms alike. Contact Ford's Legal today to learn how their team can assist your law practice. Visit them at fortslegal.com. 
That's F-O-R-T-Z-L-E-G-A-L.com. Or call 844-730-4066. You have been listening to The Litigation War Room with litigation attorney Maxwell Goss. Maxwell Goss represents clients in intellectual property and business cases in Michigan and around the country, bringing forceful advocacy and creative solutions to every case he handles. For show notes and more episodes, please visit us at thelitigationwarroom.com. That's thelitigationwarroom.com. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to The Litigation War Room. And please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. The Litigation War Room, including the podcast and all website content and social media on all platforms, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not provide legal advice and does not give rise to an attorney-client relationship under any circumstance. All views, opinions, and statements expressed by guests are those of the guests making them, and not those of the Litigation War Room.